0: tonight i'd like to kind of examine our practice in the context of a wider perspective Um, rather than um, (coughs) rather than viewing it and exploring it within the context of only the retreat i want to also expand it out into a, a wider view of our life because what good is it really what we're doing here unless there's some way we can take these experiences and insights and understandings and bring them more fully into our life tomorrow most of you are going to be leaving and going back into your more familiar uh, conditions of your life uh, your relationships, your jobs, your home your possessions your um, usual routines and might i say habit patterns as well (laughs) and you're going to be faced with all that you left and hopefully when you meet that (coughs) you'll be meeting that with a fresh perspective a fresh way of looking at the conditions of your life And this is what really makes a difference what really makes a difference is is what happened here that you then can apply to the conditions of your life this question of integration really integrating the teachings integrating the practices in a way that really make a difference for us this is what's really a vital question for me very alive for me in the very early days of practice when when i started practicing which was in the late 1970s it was only about five or six years after buddhism well i should say the theravadan buddhist tradition in the way that it's practiced here now was brought to the united states where i was living in 1974, Joseph Goldstein came back from Asia. Jack Cornfield came back from Asia. And they were invited to teach Vipassana meditation at Naropa Institute uh, by Ram Dass in, the, in 1974. And it was really there that things started to take off. And soon after that, Joseph and Jack founded their center on the East Coast of America, the Insight Meditation Society, and started having intensive retreats that were happening there. And so I was able to get involved with that fairly soon after the uh, development of that center and started doing practice there. But in those days, there really was a sense of doing the intensive retreat and then coming out into your life but it was the life was kind of incidental you know to the retreat the retreat and the practice that was happening on the retreat is what really mattered and if you really had to go back <coughs> into your life if you couldn't just stay in the retreat center or go to a monastery then i guess that's the way to have to be but the real practice was happening in retreat and at mo- in monasteries. And there was that view, and there was sometimes uh, in those early days, there really wasn't even much uh, emphasis given to the integration at the end of a retreat. <laughs> so after a three month retreat, we just, just didn't know, you know, we didn't know so much in those days about <laughs> what would happen after doing a long retreat and then going into the busyness of daily life again. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm having a little problem with my throat. <coughs> and so there really wasn't much attention given to the integration at the end of a retreat. So there was really this fairly clear division that I that I was that I held within my own mind. And it was very confusing for me. And when I go I was I was married, I was living in San Francisco and go back into my life and i just didn't really know how to integrate the teachings because the practice i was doing on retreat was very uh was really about the development of concentration really getting deep and quiet and and uh, lots of investigation into uh, mind body experience and i just couldn't see how to to integrate that how how do you how i couldn't have a mind like that in my daily life my mind wasn't going to be focused my mind wouldn't be concentrated and I couldn't see, understand really where to, how to investigate mm, the conditions of my life when I was in an ordinary mind. And that went on for about three or four years of this real dilemma. Well, I better, I better make a decision. Either I, I should ordain, I mean, become a nun, or just give up. You know, Because if I'm not going to go into the monastery, if I'm not going to... Um, uh, just spend my, make a commitment and spend my life in retreat, I'm not going to get enlightened. So I may as well just make a decision here and now. And it really was that black and white, very black and white. And I, of course, I didn't ordain, I stayed in the life of a householder at that time. But uh, slowly, slowly between uh, our own, as we were maturing in our own practice and also as the teachers were maturing in their way of teaching, we started realizing more fully as a teaching that we could teach these teachings of integration. It's so clear, it's so clear how the uh, teachings actually do uh, translate into our daily lives when we're looking at our reactivity of the mind, grasping in the mind, when we're cultivating conditions of, of heart and uh, generosity and kindness to all things. I mean, it's, we, can, we can make that, trans, that, that translation pretty well. But, it, but, but, but for the most part, there weren't very many models at that time. We didn't have models for people who were deeply committed to the practice and living the life of a householder and really making enlightenment and liberation and the Dharma the most important thing in their life, we didn't have that in the West in the, in the late 70s and the early 80s. And so we were bringing all this together, bringing all this kind of kind of uh, figuring it out as we were going along. And, and it seems that, you know, fast-forwarding a bit now, that surely this is where we are now. The, the separation of retreat and off of retreat or in a monastery, off of a, out of a monastery, that really for the most part has broken down in the way that the <coughs> teachings are uh, delivered in the West. But I really think that, it is, that there is so much emphasis now on how to live the life as a householder, how to live in the world with, the, uh, with all of the things that a householder has to deal with, all the pressures, all the demands, responsibilities, all the um, uh, relationships, and economic difficulties, all of that, how to bring all that within the context of, 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 uh, of the teachings, and, <clears throat> and how to bring that into the context of liberation. So that liberation isn't something that can only happen if you go to Asia or put or, or shave your head and take on robes or um, make a lifelong commitment to a monastery. But liberation, freedom, and enlightenment is something that's possible right here and now in any uh, shape or form uh, that we find ourselves in, any, with any clothes that we have on, with as much hair on our heads as we want to have, um, that that all of that the truly the essence of the teaching trans, transcends all of that, you know? and that's truly what the uh, what the teachings are about is how do we how do we make this integration how do we how do we really practice how do we take the practice into our lives and make it relevant so that uh, we don't get caught in this division. We don't get caught in the separation of, well, I've got to be on my pillow, I've got to be at a retreat center, I've got to be with somebody who's enlightened, or it's not going to happen. For me, this is really what's pithy. This is what has vitality, this question, this exploration. How do we make the teachings alive for us in every moment, every moment of our existence, so that we're not postponing No, we're not postponing, and we don't we don't think that the conditions have to be a certain way in order for liberation to to happen, in order for deep understanding to to happen. But right now the conditions are perfect. They're just perfect, just the way they are. I mean, of course, right now we're still here on the retreat. Wait about wait wait till you know two days from now. five days from now, you know, a week from now, will you be able to say that? You know, when, when you're back home and you really got into this sticky place again with your partner, and it's the same place that you find yourself falling into again and again and you're just, you're just caught in this rigid dynamic and you don't see any way out. Do you think you might remember well this is these are the perfect conditions for liberation <laughs> right now these are the perfect conditions or you get a bank you get your bank statement you know and you're overdrawn by a thousand pounds you know okay what's that reaction these are, these are the perfect conditions for liberation mm. this is really what's exciting to me just in that moment because just in that moment my mind is caught just in that moment I want things to be different and the self my sense of myself rages up and wants things to be otherwise it's not able to let go not able to accept what does liberation mean to me in that moment? so it's so clear you know it's so clear that we don't need certain Situation to do this practice. I mean, I'm hoping that that's really come through for you over the week. That you see that every moment, every moment, you have the opportunity to see where your mind is getting caught, how your mind is moving into a place of grasping, place of holding, a place of rejecting, place of demanding. And, and what is the potential in that moment to let go? Do you have some resources? Do you have some understanding on what you might be able to do to help yourself let go so that you you don't stay caught in the grip of that, of that grasping mind? You don't get caught in the grip of the self-contraction. Or even if you do, do you have some resources to be able to hold yourself in a kind of a loving or a caring way, right in the middle of being caught. This is what really makes a difference. Since I've moved to Seattle uh, last year, I moved there to to join a very strong city sangha, the Seattle Insight Meditation Society. And there are, uh, we have 2,000 people on our mailing list uh, in the greater uh, Seattle area. But when we have a sitting group on a Monday evening, about 100 people show up. And, and there's, these people are, uh, there's a large group of people that are very committed to uh, finding out how to live their life with deep integrity and deep freedom right in the middle of the most difficult conditions, which is living our life. Mm -hmm. And since I've moved there, I find myself having to work with people in a very different way than I work with people on retreat. Because on retreat, the conditions are very supportive for uh, deep reflection. And for the most part, we can let go of the difficulties of our life. We can just put them aside for the week that we come. And we can create a space here that is quite different, as you well know, than what we experience when we're in our daily life. But there I find that I'm working very directly with people who are right in the middle of it. You know, job pressure, relationship pressure, family, money, um, illness, Sickness, you know, different diagnosis that come, working with aging parents, and all the issues that are that are alive for people. Bringing the practice right into that. How do we do that? And I find it very challenging, very challenging because I have to meet people right there. Okay, that's what's going on. What do we do about it? How do we bring the practice of of how do we bring the practices of letting go right to that without moving away without moving away from it at all in a way we find that in a life we can't really create a safe haven we can't really i mean it's just it's a it's antithesis to being fully engaged in our life it's not a safe haven like we have here on retreat we're right in it right in the midst of the fire, so to speak. So how are we with that when we're right in it, when we're right in the fire? And so that we don't try to, um, you know, try to, try to or think that we need to create our life in such a way that we do have a, a, a safety net around us. You know, we don't use our usual strategies of of a withdrawal or, or fear or um, uh, ways we, we confine ourselves, pull ourselves back out of, out of fear of needing life full on, but that we do jump in. We do take risks. We do live our life in a wholehearted way. And where is the practice in that for us? You know, taking these risks I find that as I I've made the choice to live more fully in the world, and I, my practice has been very much in the world. What it's forced me to really look at is myself as a real human being, you know, not myself as a um, as a dharma practitioner or meditator or somebody who's an aspiring saint, you know, um, but somebody who's really just a normal, functioning human being. And in doing that, it means that I find that I have to look at ways that I make lots of mistakes and that I have a lot of limitation. There's ways that I do things that I wish I the way, do things the way I wish I didn't do them, or I'll say things in the way that I wish I didn't say them. And by 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 opening more and more to myself, just as I am, and coming into a place of truly accepting and allowing myself to be, that means to to really allow the whole range of limitation to allow the whole range of ways that as a human being I am flawed because as a human as human beings we are flawed we are imperfect in our condition state and so the practice for me the practice in the world continually points to opening to that truth you know, in 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 the times before I was involved in spiritual practice, I remember how I wanted to be a special individual, a special individual, sort of stand out in some kind of unique way, which isn't uh, a surprise since that's the entire message that we're given by the media and by the culture, is to be a, somebody who's extremely unique and, and shines in some way. And I remember my, my brother telling me when I was 19 that, you know, I really should find some way to make my personality unique and perhaps, you know, even uh, um, uh, finding something that made me special. And one time I, I remember dyeing my hair platinum blonde, thinking maybe that would work. And he said, no, no, that, that, you've gone too far there, that's not going <laughs> to work. But I remember that, that whole drive to be an individual, to be separate uh, in some way. But yet with the practices, all the practices, and really, in really the, the practices of opening and allowing and, and acceptance and uh, looking at ways that, we, that I set up ideas and I form a strong identity about myself, and ways that I judge myself and condemn myself, And working with that again and again and again, allowing something quite natural, something quite um, uh, essential to start to show itself, that that sense of individuality or specialness just keeps falling apart. But I can't be somebody special if I'm really letting myself be human, if I'm letting myself be and so in that, there's this whole kind of this way that my image of the way things were going to go, which was to be more unique and individual, just turned around and went the other way, and I started becoming more like everybody else, to much to my dismay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and really, as I deepened in practice, realizing that actually there's not much difference at all now that I have head and the and torso and two arms and two hands and feet and a heart and emotions and I make a lot of mistakes just like everybody else and 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 it's coming into this true place of acceptance radical place of acceptance in a way it started really revealing what the essential aspect of the practice was was to come more into a place of unity and connection and deep understanding about what this existence is about. Actually there isn't so much difference or separation between us all. And I'm fascinated how that continues to keep changing radically my way of relating to people, to situations, to conditions that I not only begin to see myself that way, but I start to see everybody else that way, too. People aren't so uh, special or individual, uh, separate in that way. But the way that I start to join in to this, very, this larger community, this community, this collective community of, of human beings that are sharing this space on this planet here together. And when I was having some thoughts about this talk this evening, I started to have a sense too of of this. Uh, I was talking to Catherine about this earlier. This this concept of delusion, you know, delusion which is this, delusion is the word that we use in the Buddhist teachings about the kind of the veil that comes over our eyes and we can't see clearly we can't see ourselves clearly, we can't see others clearly we don't know what we're doing Mm -hmm. the deluded mind and as I start coming more and more into my, my humanness, my humanity I'm also able to recognize how much delusion there actually is and i'm recognizing that it's it's actually starting to be feel very liberating be very, it's very liberating to actually acknowledge that there's layers of delusion there's many layers of of, of ways that i still can't see very clearly and as i open to that i actually feel a sense of celebration like celebrating delusion celebrating the level of delusion because it's freeing it's freeing to celebrate that because what that does is it just cuts through that expectation or that demand that desire to be somebody you know to be the the unique or the special individual but to actually be able to celebrate the whole aspect of the being whole aspect of myself celebrate the whole aspect of yourself just as you are even with all the layers of delusion that are still operating so I see that that the whole feeling of celebration the celebration of life starts to get stronger and stronger as I allow myself to acknowledge the truth of right where I am right where this being how this being is manifesting in this moment so sometimes that means that i may find myself in a situation or you might find yourself in a situation where the the conditions are such that you find yourself very caught you find yourself very angry very frustrated or you find yourself falling into a lot of grief or sorrow you know you really feel caught in that you know, is there a way to actually make that okay Just to be in that not to have to move away from it or use the practice to find some way to let go of it or to think that i have to you know practice equanimity in this moment or uh, i better t- turn up my loving kindness practice you know okay that's it and to really come into the full experience of that the full feeling of that because I think that we may not be aware how often we have the censor the self judge the self censor that's saying no you shouldn't be with that no you shouldn't be feeling that no you shouldn't be experiencing that you know which is just more of the self or the ego identity, you know? But yet it takes on the disguise of the wise one or the meditator or the, the one who, the voice of the free one, you know? But it's just more of the, the self conditioning of how I should be. And it's so easy with, these, with, with the Buddhist. Um, sort of the Buddhist ideology, you know, particularly around anger. You know, Buddhists don't get angry, you know. It's really not okay to get angry. And I can really see that even with my twenty-some years of conditioning with with Buddhism, that was pretty strong, you know. I'm supposed to be compassionate, I'm supposed to be kind, you know. I shouldn't be, you know, somebody was telling me the other day about you know, I still see that when I'm driving the car and uh, uh, somebody cuts me off, ah, this rage comes up. You know, I just want to kill the guy. I'll get out of the car and start knocking the guy down. You know, And then the guilt that can arise around that. You know? That's okay. You know? It's okay. There certainly needs to be a certain amount of reflection <laughs> and a certain amount of remorse towards the 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 ill will that arises around that towards that other person but yet we i think that as buddhist you know or somebody who's doing buddhist practice we need to be so careful not to be too quick to push away the difficult feeling we're not too quick to think oh that that one that one shouldn't be be in our repertoire you know But i find more and more that by giving expression to these uh different aspects of myself it's actually very freeing it's very freeing there's much more space there's much more of a capacity to move through the different changes both of my of my uh my emotional life and my mental life and my uh the the conditions in my life just to move with it all to, to dance with it more to play with it all and in that way there seems to be more of an aliveness more of an engagement more of a fullness and i i i think it's useful to talk about this because i think that you know with the buddhist all the all the inspiring teachings around buddhism of of goodness and love and patience and and equanimity and Um, and generosity and freedom, I mean, truthfulness, all these lovely and beautiful qualities, we can too easily use that as a a measuring stick towards ourselves, as a way of keeping ourselves small or keeping ourselves uh, in a view of somebody who is unfree, someone who is not very... Liberated or not very enlightened, or has a long way to go in their practice. You know? But yet, perhaps you could, maybe as, as I'm speaking, you can get just a different way of viewing this, another way of looking at this. You know, that the possibility of letting all that come in before we stop it, before we censor it, before the, the mind is so quick to say, No, you know, that's, I, I can't let that one. That one come in I can't let that one increase but sometimes that may be just the very thing that's needed in that moment you know just to sit down on the sofa after getting some news or after having a phone call with somebody that was difficult or or maybe having a hard morning and feeling very stressed and just sit down and maybe just feel the pain of that feel the sorrow of that you know and and feel feel how life has just gotten too much and out of control and maybe that some tears come and you feel really like, like sobbing and just letting that come you know, letting it move through, letting it be free not having to push that away and it moves by itself it moves on its own we don't have to be afraid of it don't have to contain it to hold it out of some ideology about how to be or how to be with goodness how to be a good practitioner or a good meditator be free with all that let it move through and we watch we watch how that builds and how it grows in our mind and we want to be we, we want to watch that it doesn't grow in a way that it starts to fall into a place where it starts causing us even more pain, or we start acting out in a way that it does cause more pain to another. So we do. We don't say, well, just let all of this be free. Let all these emotions be free, all these expressions be free. But we do, with the practice, we do have the wisdom teaching. The wisdom teachings, where we do practice goodness, we do practice God kindness we do practice uh, a mind that's not reactive so how do we hold these two together how do we hold these two together so we let ourselves be free we let the emotions be free the mind be free our creativity be free but we still practice we still practice we still practice the the inspiration of the teachings in the, um, in the uh, sometimes when you read the Buddhist text there's some very pithy parts there that kind of uh, explain the essence of the teachings and one of those is when the Buddha talks about the four great efforts of practice and the four great efforts are considered to be the uh, this definition of the path of transformation, or we might say the, the training of the heart. The training of the heart. And the four great efforts in the practice are, the first one, to diminish unwholesome mental states that have already arisen. To diminish the unwholesome state, mental states that have already arisen. So that, so that in this case as we let this move through us freely we're also using the discriminating wisdom to know when we may have to pull back when things are going a little bit too far or when we made these these unwholesome states of mind like anger or fear or or uh, uh, sorrow might start causing more and more pain to ourselves or another the second great effort is to prevent those unwholesome mental states that have not arisen from arising. Mm-hmm. And so that means using the resources and the, the techniques that we've learned, the understanding of the practice, so that we can work with the mind so that these unwholesome states don't grow. The third great effort is to strengthen the wholesome states, that, the wholesome mental states that have already arisen or have already developed. So any of the wholesome states of mind, of love, generosity, uh, kindness, truthfulness, morality, patience, um, equanimity, to encourage those, to enhance those, to strengthen those. So when there's wholesome feelings of, of love or, or generosity, to enhance that, to increase that, to move towards it, to let it follow, to, let it, to follow that. To, play, to allow that one to play, play itself out. And the fourth great effort is to cultivate and develop those wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. So the, the qualities of mind and heart that have not arisen.
1: You
0: know, if you find yourself not very um, loving, a lot of the time when you're with your child or your mother perhaps to practice that way of being more loving being more connected being more kind and so it's an interesting question you no know? and I think that's what makes the the practice in some ways so complex is it can seem quite confusing to be, be a human being and to be filled with all of this emotion and passion and, and uh, reactivity and all these, these variety of states of mind and heart and, and not want to constrain that, not want to hold that to confine ourselves out of ideas and images and, and misunderstandings but at the same time to really practice the teachings of of goodness of cultivating the deep goodness of our being so I suppose what that implies is that we have to really know what it means to practice goodness what does it really mean to practice goodness and in the beginning the reason we practice goodness is because the heart is still somewhat hindered it's still kind of hindered or covered over by our difficult conditioning from our past and we want to break the heart open we want to break the heart open and we usually live our life so much caught up in our thinking mind through the thinking mind or the mental activity of our mind and when we start working with the heart we are letting go of the confinement of the mind and moving more from the place of our heart moving more naturally from that place of our heart and what eventually happens is that the mind actually collapses into the heart once and for all so that, that the heart is the "is that which is expressing itself. The qualities of the heart of love, generosity, connection, kindness that is the expression, when the mind is no longer binding us through memory and idea and image. So in the beginning, we practice those practices as we've been doing here we practice loving kindness we practice compassion we practice joy we practice equanimity we practice truthfulness we practice morality we practice patience we have to we have to apply our understanding to the mind as long as the mind is still strong as long as the mind is still operating until the heart begins to crack (laughs) I like that image of the heart cracking open perhaps you've had some experience of that for yourself you can feel just the natural eminence of of the being expressing itself quite naturally and spontaneously it's not the mind it's not an idea it's not for myself what I'm doing is not for myself but it's do it's, it's what, what I'm doing is because I see that I'm connected to all things I'm not different than anybody else <coughs> and I want to treat every being as myself I don't want to harm anything, but I realize I need to live with tremendous sensitivity and lightness of being because everything's so fragile, everything's so delicate. And so there's a a natural understanding, it's not an idea. But through the practices and through the teachings, something's finally cracked open, <laughs> and we get it. We get what it's all about. We've been practicing more the four Brahma Viharas or the four um, divine abodes on retreats. The the four the Brahma Viharas means the, the home of the Brahmas or the home of the gods, and the Buddha called these four Brahma Viharas the the, um, uh, the 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 natural abiding of the heart. That's the the first one is the loving kindness or the Metta. The second one is compassion, or Karuna in in Pali. The third one is um, uh, empathetic joy, or the joy for other people's good fortune, or in Pali, mudita Or the, the last one is equanimity, or in Pali, Upeka, the, the, the mind that is balanced and composed. And so we practice these four practices because each one is a fruition. Of the open heart we may feel quite bound up in ourself as we practice but yet they these practices can reveal to us the possibility of what it's like in that location of the open heart when we practice metta we're practicing a selfless love a love that has the capacity to embrace all beings equally without distinction. We practice a generosity of the heart that doesn't depend on conditions or people being a certain way. But the heart is so big that it has the immense capacity to hold it all. But when we practice loving kindness, what we may be confronted with is ourselves and our attachment to the way we want things to be, how difficult it is to to let go and to embrace in such a, a, a whole way. So it shows us ourselves in that practice, but we practice the letting go of that, the opening to all beings. <coughs> With compassion, when we practice the compassion practice, we turn that loving-kindness towards the painful aspect of our life towards the pain in ourselves and the pain of others and we see if we can open to the pain without the self recoiling in aversion and sorrow but yet to see if we can even for a moment touch the capacity to open to the immense pain that that exists on this planet that exists within our own minds that exists within our own hearts not collapsing into the small self in that the mudita or the empathetic joy it's the love or the loving kindness turned towards the joy or turned towards happiness and without the self in that there's the immense capacity for joy the immense capacity to open to uh, the, the, the good fortune and the happiness that exists here. And when the self gets involved, the self turns that into envy and jealousy because it thinks that the joy is very limited and quantified and there's not enough to go around. So I've got to get the joy that I can for myself and somebody's going to take it away from me. And then if we can see the self grasping onto that and let go and open out, the immense possibility of joy in a way we can't even imagine. And then the practice of equanimity that we've been talking about, which is really the, um, the one that underlies all the other three. Because with equanimity, we can open to all beings in loving kindness. With equanimity, we can open to the immense pain With equanimity we can open to the joy that all beings can experience so these practices for us can be very powerful in showing us the truth of the open heart of the liberated mind but at the same time we have to be careful not to use the practices as a way to keep ourselves limited keep ourselves in judgment that we aren't doing well or we're not doing okay but to constantly remind ourselves of the ways that we are making ourselves small that we are holding ourselves in judgment and to see if we can remind ourselves that what this is about is freedom and how? what do I need to do right now to really let myself be free. What what do I need to do right now to really experience freedom in this moment? (coughs) So our practice is... we say our practice is simple but not easy it's simple but not easy we have a great task in front of us Um, but yet that task is really, we only have to attend to that task in one moment just this moment fortunately we don't have to do this for the rest of our life We only have to do it now. (laughs) And maybe that makes it a little bit easier. (laughs) Let's just sit together for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.